Oh, Lord, our hearts are filled with awe and wonder at your glory. You have exalted above all things your name and your word, your glory and your Son. What a gift it is that we have. In the pages of this book, your word, everything points to the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. We give praise to you and we glorify you now as we study your word and learn more about the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, your Son, God himself. We worship you. We ask for your help. We depend upon you. I ask, Lord, that you would open eyes today in, in the way that only you can. As I preach, Lord, make these words come alive in souls and bring life and, and light and glory to yourself. We pray, Lord, for those who are here who know you and have been walking with you, that this sermon would meet them and challenge them as well. Strengthen them. Encourage us all, Lord, as we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I titled the sermon this morning, Jesus the Christ of God. Jesus the Christ of God. And, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes we, we have words in, you know, Christian uh, atmosphere or Christianese. We say words. For instance, this, this word, Jesus Christ. Do we know what we're saying when we say Jesus Christ? What does the Christ mean? Well, we're going to learn more about what that word means and why it's so significant when it's attached to the name of Jesus, the person of Jesus. And so Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. Uh, before we go into these verses, though, it's important that we have a little bit of a, of a context here. Uh, the Gospels are, are wonderful. I love that we have four Gospels, each written by a different man, each written for really a different purpose or emphasis. Luke has as an emphasis to bring us into the full um, view of this Jesus Christ. His life, his ministry, his qualifications, both in humanity and divinity as the Son of God. And so, when he says in chapter 1, I've written an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, he doesn't mean chronological necessarily. Some of the other Gospels pay a, a lot more chronological attention to the events of the life of Christ. Luke wants us to see an orderly, basically a, a, a build-out of the man who is the Son of God, Jesus himself. And so he will skip large portions of the, the events of the life of Jesus to carry this theme, this emphasis. Here's what I think he is emphasizing. You remember when the disciples asked this question in the boat as the storm that was raging about to kill him and sink the boat was turned into the, a sea of glass and just calm. The winds calmed down and the waves instantly. They say this, who is this? who even commands the wind and the waves, and they obey him. That question comes up. And then just a few verses later, Herod himself asks the same question. Who is this that the twelve are speaking and preaching about? This new kingdom that is being ushered in. Who is this? And so I think because that question has been proposed, Luke just keeps coming back to answer that question. And what happens is between uh, chapter 9, verse 17, and verse 18, 
there's a ton of stuff that Luke has decided to pass over. Let me show you. Seven major events that are recorded in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus walking on the water. Remember this? When he's walking across the lake and the disciples are trying their best in the wind to, to make it across the lake and they're kind of struggling. They're having a tough time. And Jesus is doing the moonwalk, you know, across the water. And, and they think it's a ghost. Well, he crawls in the boat and he stills the waves and the wind again. Uh, that's in Mark chapter 6. And then he healed just masses of people in Gennesaret, across on the, uh, the western side of the Sea of Galilee. He confronted the Pharisees. He delivered a Gentile woman's daughter from a demon. He went all the way up to Tyre and Sidon, into a, a very northerly Gentile area, and he, he performed miracles up there as well. So he has covered a lot of ground. We're talking a number of weeks, if not months, have passed here in this part that Luke has skipped. He goes back down to the Decapolis, that area of ten cities, and he heals a deaf man down there. Then he feeds 4,000, and we know the numbers. If you multiply that out, that's 12,000-ish, if not 16,000 uh, people when you include women and children, and feeds them um, with loaves and fish once again. So there's two feedings that take place, and <laughs> shortly after that, the disciples get in the boat, and they're like, oh, we forgot food. What should we do? And Jesus is like, <laughs> really, guys? Did you forget? I mean, we, we, we don't have to worry about this. I am the bread. And then he heals a blind man in Bethsaida in Mark chapter 8. And so all of this has taken place, but Luke, he sees this, he knows this, and he says, but I want to carry this theme. I want to get to the answer to this question, and I want to hear it from the disciples themselves. And so he moves us all the way down to verse 18, uh, in the text. Now, the other thing we've got to understand is Luke doesn't tell us this, but the other gospel writers do. He heads to Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, which is way up in the north in the Golan, and it's close to the city of Dan. So even last week when Dr. John was here, he said uh, in the Old Testament when it, it speaks of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, it's the, from the north to the south. Dan, the city of Dan is up near the north, this is a stone's throw from there. In fact, um, since I have all these fun things, this is a rock from Caesarea Philippi that we brought back. And you can see this red stone. It's uh, not hard to carve. It's fairly soft. And uh, this is what this area is, is really made of, a big rock outcropping. I want to tell you a little more about Caesarea Philippi because it has a lot to do with understanding these, these verses. So little bit on this. We're just 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, at the top of the Sea of Galilee, which is a very Jewish region down there in the Sea of Galilee. The farther north you go, the, the more pagan you get. And uh, we're at the foot of Mount Hermon, okay? So if you can picture the snow that Dr. John showed in Israel, there's, there's snow. You can go skiing in Israel. You wouldn't, wouldn't think that. That's on Mount Hermon. Right at the base of that is uh, Caesarea Philippi. In modern day, when we were there, Syria is just over here, Lebanon is just over here, Israel is just over here. You're really in the corner of three quite hostile nations, uh, and so, you know, you're glad when nothing flies through the sky at that point. Um, 
Here's a picture or on a map so you can see. I'll try to point this out where we're at here. This is uh, Capernaum where we spent a lot of time, Bethsaida. And then 20 miles, he takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. Here's Mount Hermon up here and the city of Dan. Um, Modern-day Lebanon, Syria here. The Golan Heights are here. There's a lot of uh, uh, animosity about this area. Lots of rockets being fired in this direction. And uh, so Caesarea Philippi is right up here. Uh, here's a picture of it that we took when we were there. It's a beautiful area, just lush, lots of water. Um, some of the spring that comes out of this is what feeds the Jordan River, which runs all the way down and waters Israel. Um, I'll zoom in a little bit here. You can see some of the ruins. This is from the temple of Augustus. Uh, no, this was the temple of uh, Zeus that they built there. Lots of idol worship taking place. And you, I mean, you see it. And you're like, yeah, that's cool, it's, it's there. This is a gigantic pillar that survived the earthquake uh, that pretty much demolished this area. I'll show you how big it is. That's me there, and that's the size of that pillar. Incredible to see these ruins today as you walk around. Gracie went up close to one of these altar areas. Uh, this, I'll tell you more about um, what this was, in fact, there's inscriptions on the bottom of these all over. They're, they're little things. In this would have been a wooden idol carved to the god Pan. And uh, lots of things to explain that way. Let me, let me tell you how this all unfolded. The rebellion at Dan began early in Israel's history. They, basically, they were rebels from the start. Uh, the tribe of Dan really has a horrible track record. They rebelled early. They set up a replacement altar, and they're like, yeah, why bother making our way all the way down to Jerusalem to sacrifice? We'll just do it right here in, in our own backyard. Uh, the Lord was extremely upset with what they did. Um, not long after that, Jeroboam, the king of Israel, the northern uh, kingdom, decided that he would build a high place himself up there at Dan, and Baal worship came shortly thereafter. They chased after the gods of the Canaanites. Horrible, unspeakable things. Even child sacrifice was done in, in the name of these pagan deities. Okay? God's judgment and wrath was fierce, especially on the northern kingdoms. Because of this, the southern kingdom lasted longer than the north, but I think in large part it's because of the just total depravity of this area in this region. After things began to fall and the area was Hellenized and the, uh, the Romans came in, uh, the Greek fertility gods replaced the Canaanite gods. And so you have uh, kind of a, a morph of, of idolatry, maybe a modernization of idolatry. And these Greek fertility gods began to be worshipped. Specifically, the worship of the goat man, uh, the god named Pan, who was uh, uh, a terrible, terrible deity, and those who worshipped him did terrible, terrible things. Um, we don't have to get into all of that. It's just horrific depravity, the worship of these kinds of just evil and corrupt, quote-unquote, gods, led to some uh, deep depravity in the region. Uh, this area behind us here, this cave, became known as the Gates of Hell. 
and uh, it's, it was seen as a gateway to the underworld. And I'll show you more about this in, in a minute here. This cave here is still there today. We got this picture. You can see this sacrificial stone that I think there's, there's stain here still from blood that, that things have been sacrificed on this stone. But this cave used to be much, much bigger before the earthquake took place. And in this cave was a deep pool. Um, Josephus writes that it went down deeper than anyone could measure with a rope. They, they couldn't find the bottom of this pool. And what they would do is they would take sacrifices, mostly goats, and they would kill them and throw them into the depth of this pool. And then eventually the blood of that sacrifice would show up downstream. And they would see that as their sacrifice had been accepted by Pan. It was known as the gates of hell. You can, you can picture the depth of this depravity as it unfolds here in this area. Herod Philip decided to rebuild it and name it after himself. So today we know it as Caesarea Philippi because of that. Now, here is an artist's rendition. Dr. John let me have this picture. I thought it was so good. This is the cave here, and there was a sanctuary built here to the pagan gods. And then one here, and, and this is where Gracie was standing, right here, this area. And another one here, I think this was Zeus, and then on down the line. Uh, this was the area of dancing goats. They would dance with goats and uh, sacrifice for goats. There's a goat burial graveyard over here where they would kill the goat and put the bones in there. I just crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. What, why is Jesus going here? Did you, don't you wonder that? Why is he going up here? The cave even today, it, it just, it's scary, and the history here is dark, satanic. This is evil to the core. Why would Jesus bring his disciples to this area? I think there's a few reasons. One, the disciples probably had never, ever been up here. A faithful Jew would never even consider walking up into a godless pagan area like this. But Jesus takes his 12 in seminary still. Remember, they're still in training. And he walks them up into Caesarea Philippi to observe these things as he teaches. A very significant moment in his ministry. The second thing is the crowds would not have followed them up here all the masses. So they finally get to be alone. And we saw this at the feeding of the 5,000. Remember how much they were needing to just be together alone away from the crowd so that he could teach and they could discuss and interact. And so we find that they're actually alone and they're able to have conversations and really have this, uh, this intensive training moment that we're going to read about. So with all that in view, I think we'll have an appreciation for these verses a little more as we come into this. Let's pick up the text in verse 18, Peter's profession. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Okay, so just pause there. You're like, wait, was he alone or were they with him? What that means is the masses were not there. He was alone. The, the, the crowds were not there. And so Jesus is praying. And, and I just can't help but wonder, some of these moments, what is he praying? What is he praying? We know that before significant moments in the ministry of Christ, he is in intense prayer with the Father. 
alone with the Father. So he's got the disciples and he's praying. I would speculate that he's praying for the disciples here. That he's praying to the Father and saying, Father, open their eyes to see me for who I am. Show them my glory. Confirm in their hearts that I am, in fact, the Messiah. I think there's an aspect of that that may show up as we move through. And Jesus asked them, the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? An interesting question. Why would Jesus ask that? What does he want to know? He wants to have the disciples pay attention to the, 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 the popular say of the day. What is it that the masses have concluded about me? Well, that's an important thing to consider. As believers, it's important for us to consider this as well. Because the fact of the matter is, is if we don't consider this, we can easily be swayed by it. We need to understand what are the masses thinking as it relates to Jesus. And they answered. So this is kind of a group answer. Well, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. One of the other gospel writers records maybe Jeremiah, right? Some say a prophet. Some say John the Baptist. Herod, he figured it maybe been John the Baptist coming back. Part of a judgment because of his killing of John the Baptist. In our day, here's some options. Have you heard these? Oh, man. I think Jesus is just a great moral teacher. Good example, right? A really skilled communicator. Some say a prophet, right? Prophet. Even our Muslim friends would, would concede this. That Jesus, we think he was a prophet. Yeah. Many in our day have concluded he's just a legend. He's just a regular dude. And all the stuff has been made about it. It's all made up. It's just a myth, a legend. Some say a fraud. He was a fake. He was a fake. He was a poser. Uh, Many people have claimed to be Jesus, the Messiah. He was just another in a long line of frauds. We need to have a sense for how to respond to these kinds of conclusions, don't we? We need to be thinking... Okay, if, if my neighbor draws this conclusion, what do I say? How can I help point him, encourage him, direct him to who Jesus truly is? Then he said to them, who do you say that I am? The intensity goes up at this point. Everybody's chiming in. They responded, oh, some say John the Baptist. It's easy there. What do the crowd say? They're all participating. Then he says, but who do you say that I am? The you here in the text is plural. He's asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? I think here there was some silence, some intimidation factor. I think there was some uncertainty. Well, I mean, if, am I going to be the one to speak? Thomas was like, I'm not talking. I'm, I'm not going to be the first to speak. Who's the first to speak? Peter, our guy, yeah, Rocky, Peter, Petros. He speaks up and he says, the Christ of God. You're the Christ of God. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? 
the Christ of God. Christ, when we say Jesus Christ, it's the, word, the Greek word Christos. Christos. It, it, it comes from the Hebrew word for Messiah. Messiah or anointed one. That's what we're speaking of. Jesus is the Messiah of God. The one who's been anointed. The one who's been sent of God. He's the deliverer. He's the one of whom all the prophets have spoken. He's the one that we've been looking for every year. Now, we've got to appreciate this eager expectation. For a Jew in this day, it's not so much in, in our day. You're over there in Israel. There is just this, this, this settled sense of we don't need to look for the Messiah. It's, it's so sad. But in this day, every child who was born, who was a boy, the question was posed, could this be the one? The promised one, the deliverer, could this baby be the one? Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies. Matthew records Peter's response with a little more build-out. He says, Peter says, you are the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So Peter's affirming here the deity of Christ. Not just the Messiah, one chosen of God, but, but even more specifically, he builds it out. God himself. We see this show up time and time again throughout the text in the Gospels. If, in fact, Jesus was not God, he would have corrected this. Just like the angels did constantly. Hey, get up. Don't worship me. I'm not the object of worship. If he was a prophet, a good prophet, he would have done the same. Don't, don't bow to me. Don't worship me. Don't call me God. But if he is, in fact, God himself, the Son... He's basically saying, you're exactly right. You're right on. Amazing. In Matthew, we have more of a response than Luke includes, and it's just too good to skip over. Even though we're in Luke, we're going to jump over to Matthew because of this response. Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. To that we say answered prayer. Maybe, in fact, right there, we see a glimpse into the prayer of Jesus to the Father and an answer that, that Simon, speaking on behalf of the others, says, you're the Messiah. No one can draw that conclusion apart from the work of God to open their eyes to see Jesus in that way. You cannot muster it up from within. We don't have the capacity to see in that way. We are blind to him on our own. It's a significant thing. And then he says this, and I tell you, you are Petras, or Rocky. You are the rock, Peter. Now why would he say that? I think he was in an observation point looking down over this area, over these very rocks right here. And he's saying, you are Peter, and on this rock, now he's playing with words. On this rock, what is the rock? Well, the Catholics had, have concluded that Peter was the rock. I think that's a mistake. I think he's, he's saying, Rocky, Petros, you are Peter, the rock, 
and on this rock I will build my church. The profession of Peter, his speaking of Jesus as Messiah, that is the rock, the foundation of the church. Jesus is not looking for a replacement. He's not making Peter the focal point. He's making himself the rock, the foundation, the focal point of the entire church. This is the first mention of the church that Jesus has given. He calls it his church, and he calls himself the builder of his church. And then he says this, and I love it, and the gates of hell. Why would he say that? You see that cave you're staring at? I think that's exactly what he was looking at. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, it being the church, my church, that I build. Wow. When was the last time you saw gates attacking someone? Gates are not offensive weapons. They're defensive weapons, are they not? Gates do nothing but protect and hold. So who's on offense? The church. Storming the gates of hell. Shredding them. Speaking the gospel. God's building the church. The Father's opening eyes. And hell can hold no soul when the the, the Father claims it. He gives life. And the church prevails over the gates of hell. Greater is the one within us, right, than he who is in the world. All the evil, the darkness, the depravity on display. This was the illustration Jesus had in mind. He took them there to show them this and tell them this. It's incredible. As they look on all the pagan nonsense, all these glorious temples, what is the church described as? A temple of the Holy Spirit. We are living stones being built up as a temple to the glory of God. The gates of hell don't stand a chance because Christ is the builder of the church. So here's my encouragement. When you have a good experience in church, praise the rock who builds his church. What a great savior they preach. That's the, that's the greatest compliment we can get as a church. What a great savior is preached at that church. Now, at this moment, if you enter into, let's say we're Peter here. You're the Christ of God. And then you just get this this unbelievable affirmation that the Father God himself has opened your eyes and stirred your heart to see Jesus in this way. And you speak these words and you're right on. You're like, yes, yes, finally. I didn't jump the gun. I didn't misspeak. I was bold and I was on to tell everybody guys he's the one let's go let's go this moment it would have just completely sucked the air out of the equation the next verses would have completely surprised me. what is this let's read him an inconceivable prophecy verse 21 and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Tell this to no one. 
saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And you're Peter and you're just like, hey, huh? First of all, tell no one. Why can't we? We've been waiting for this our entire lives. Generations have been waiting for this answer. And we're not supposed to say anything. He, it says he strictly charged them and commanded them. This is repeated, like very serious warning. Don't say a word to anybody. Maybe we could just add the word yet because we know what's coming, right? Not yet. Timing is the key, the timing. The fullness of time has not yet come. If they were to run out and begin to proclaim this, there could be a, a, a coup, a political uh, taking of Christ and inserting him and, and a, a battle with the Romans and all of this totally missing the point of what kind of kingdom this king has arrived to usher in. Many people who shouted Hosanna shouted those very words thinking that this was in fact the one who was going to overthrow Rome, take the throne, usher in the kingdom. It's a different kind of Messiah than they anticipated. What kind of Messiah is Jesus? What kind of Christ is he? Now, they see him rightly as the Christ, as the Messiah, but they don't understand the fullness of what that is yet. That still is going to grow. And there's a lot of verses that are going to build this out for them and a lot of teaching that Jesus has to give them to help them understand. I don't think many of them probably didn't really get this until after he was raised. A suffering servant? He means you have to suffer many things. To be rejected by our leaders? <laughs> You're supposed to be the king. They can't reject you. That doesn't work with our plan. How is it that you're going to deliver if you're dead? Who has ever been excited about a dying deliverer? And a rising redeemer? What do we even do with that? Notice this. No response. Right? There's nothing recorded here. This is, if there was a response, this is what I think it would be. No comprendo. I don't get it. I totally, you just lost me. I don't understand what you're talking about. I like, I like where we were. I have no clue how we got over here now. No comprendo. Then Jesus continues in verse 23. Christians cross. Oh, believers pay close attention to these verses. The Christians cross. He said to all, to all those disciples there, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What kind of Messiah is this? He's speaking to this question. He's, he's building this out. Now, I am not who you think I am. Yes, I am the Messiah. But if you want to follow this Messiah, this kingdom is unlike anything you could, 
could conceive of. And it begins with denying yourself. It begins with taking up your cross. This is the, 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 the cross in this day was the most humiliating form of, of, of death. It was excruciating and it was totally the, the, the last thing you would want to consider, taking up. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you're going to be a cross bearer, a self-denying person. One who is willing to sacrifice self. Hmm. What's interesting about this is none of this is natural. We don't do this naturally. We, we live in a world that is tuned not to self-deny, but to self-gratify. Go get it. Take what is yours. Get what you want. Do what makes you happy. Don't deny yourself. And Jesus says just the opposite. My kingdom is going to be filled with people who deny themselves, who, who sacrifice themselves. They lay themselves down and bear their cross daily. What does it mean to bear your cross, Christian? This is the epitome of humble submission to the kingship of Christ. The cross that you are given is sovereignly assigned to you by God every day. And the bearing of that cross to the glory of God is your kingdom mission, your assignment. Think of the vows of marriage. In sickness and in health, bear your cross, believer. For richer, for poorer, bear your cross for His glory, believer. In good times and in bad, persecuted church, bear your cross daily for His glory. It's there you'll find your joy. This is submission to the King. The rule and reign of Christ happens right there. Jesus is teaching of his kingdom. Then he builds it out more. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's a familiar verse, isn't it? Whose kingdom are you investing in? Who, whose kingdom are you going to build, give your life to? Are you going to give your life to the kingdom of God, to, to the rule and reign of Christ, or are you going to say, no, I'd rather just build my own kingdom? Wh who would Joel Osteen encourage you to choose? Your kingdom or the kingdom of God? Right? Prosperity gospel says it's all about your kingdom, your happiness, your material possessions, your health, wealth, and prosperity. And I say, garbage! That's not the gospel. The most satisfying joy in this life is to lose yourself for the kingdom. Die to yourself. My life is not my own. You own my days. You are my king, my lord. 
Lead on. It is a kingdom embracing following. And more than that, he says this, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Remember Paul, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There is a, a resolute confidence, unashamedness in the gospel of Christ who suffered and died for us. Now, you've got to feel these words. The night Jesus was betrayed, what happened to these who heard these words? They fled. All of them. They were gone. How about Peter? The bold one to speak first here. Just, just the, the words are still echoing in the ears. Deny. 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 I prayed for you, Peter. I prayed for you. Oh, the work of the king in the hearts of those who embrace him is faithful. We are weak, friends. We are weak. Our greatest resolve is nothing. And he loves us. And he holds us. And he scoops us up and he says, it's going to be okay. Cling to me now. Cling to me now. I tell you, one of the biggest difference makers in the lives of these men was the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came and indwelt these men, the strength from within, divine strength living within them, made them bold like never before. And they went and they died for the king, for his glory. They were not ashamed, all except for John. It's a king-glorifying mission. We're, we're to glorify the king in all that we do. And then he says this. This is so epic. Love these words. If, if you're the disciples, you're still like, you're moving from no comprendo to deny yourself, bear your cross, right? Die to yourself. And then he says these words, and your heads just have to have been spinning. I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That's encouraging. That's exciting. What does it mean? Come back next week. <laughs> I think Jesus is pointing to the text that, that Luke includes the very next week the transfiguration of Christ that most likely took place on Mount Hermon uh, just six days after this event. Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John will see Christ in His glory. I can't wait to preach it next week. I think there's also a view to the day of the empty tomb, the resurrection. Judas? Nope. He didn't see that. He wasn't there for that. 
And then the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came, and they spoke, and the church was lit ablaze, built by Jesus. And here we are. Here we are. Church of the Messiah. Our response this morning, who do you say that he is? Friends, let's not play games, okay? Church, it's great to come, it's great to sing, it's great to fellowship and go. At the end of the day, heaven and hell are on the line. You've you got to feel this. Who do you say that he is? Great moral teacher, a prophet, a myth, a legend, a fraud, or the son of the living God. If you answer any of these on the screen, you are headed for hell. I'm telling you this morning, you must believe that Jesus is who he is. He's the son of God, the Messiah. He's your only hope. Sin is serious. Hell is hot and it never ends. So be serious today. Don't just come and leave. Do the work. Ask the question. Have you answered the question from your soul? Yes, I believe Jesus is my Messiah, my Savior. He is the Son of God. Oh, Lord, Father God, open eyes right here in this place right now. Do what only you can do. I pray that in Jesus' name. A former atheist, C.S. Lewis, wrote of this list. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Well, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Friends, make your choice today. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And Lewis, the former atheist, says without any doubt, he was and is God. I love that. I love that. Hear that today. Skeptics in the midst, anyone holding back and saying, I just don't know if I'm sure about this Jesus. Today, make today the day you say, you know what? I'm in. I trust him. I trust him. I turn from my sins. I trust him as Lord and Savior. For those who have already done this, here's our list. Whoo! Super convicting. Multiple times before I preach this sermon, that list slapped me in the face. Jeremy, 
Are you self-denying in this moment? Are you building the kingdom of God or the kingdom of self? Those are the two options. Will I spend my life, my days, my energy, my joy spending all that I am for the kingdom of God? Or will I squander my days building my own kingdom and then watch it burn to nothing? You can't take it with you. You can't. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So make your life count and live it for the king, for his glory, and for the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we honor you as God, and we thank you for the gift of sending your Son, our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. We claim him together today to be our joy, our only hope, our treasure, our reward, our Savior, our Lord, our King. We worship you, we worship Jesus. We worship your spirit at work right now in this place. Oh, stir our affections for you. Help us to see the face of Christ and to bow in awe and wonder before him. Lord, equip any here in this place who need eyes to see. Open their eyes, I pray. Point out the glory of the God-man, Jesus Christ, and reveal the, the foolishness of things like the goat-man and idols that we invent to bow before. We thank you for the, uh, the, the opportunity to gather and be your church here still today, built by you in this place. We give praise to you, Jesus, for your faithful and gentle and kind, fruitful work in our midst. And we give glory to you. And come what may, Lord, find us faithful, clinging to you, with all your might, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Remember that line in The Princess Bride where they say, have fun storming the castle? <laughs> Good Shepherd Community Church. It's a little more somber than that one quote. Have fun storming the gates of hell. You are the church of Jesus Christ a light in the dark, a city on a hill. So shine this week. Go to the places that are dark and light them with the light that cannot be overcome by the darkness. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.